We cannot have this profound an abdication from a visceral link with food and expect food to be authentic. That was Joel Sellerton, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. G'day, I'm your host, Charlie Arnott, and in this podcast series, I'll be uncovering the world of regenerative agriculture, its people, practices, and principles, and empowering you to apply their learnings and experience to your business and life. I'm an eighth-generational Australian farmer who transitioned my family farm from industrial methods to holistic regenerative practices. Join me as I dive deep into the regenerative journeys of other farmers, chefs, health practitioners, and anyone else who's up for a yarn, and find out why and how they transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott. With multiple books and DVD learning resources under his belt, Joel Salatin has an international following, the inspiration behind numerous documentaries and the mentor and educator to thousands of farmers. This fella is totally the real deal. And what a source of wisdom and experience and inspiration he's been to me over many years. I first came across Joel uh, in the late 2000s online and then met him at a field day at Maloon Creek Natural Farms near Bungendore in about 2013. Uh, and in t- and actually attended his very first closed mentoring workshop um, probably five years ago now at the farm at Byron Bay. Um, and had the pleasure of sharing the stage with him at numerous events last year in 2019. Quick-witted, incredibly hardworking, and with seemingly um, seemingly boundless energy. Uh, Joel is our in our interview steps us through his regenerative journey from his formative years as the son of a chicken farming accountant in Venezuela, uh, before being forced to flee to the U.S. Uh, through uh, the rehabilitation of his family farm in Swoop, Virginia, all the way to the prolific supplier of nutrient-dense food to his loyal customers from his family farm in Swoop, um, an international legendary public speaker and mentor. I caught up with Joel uh, in May 2019 at the Nutrisoil Sustainable Abundance Conference and we only had one microphone to share, so uh, he understandably got the lion's share of it. Um, So I apologise if I sound a little bit far away. Enjoy. G'day and uh, welcome to the show. I... um Honoured and most grateful to be uh, interviewing one of my, um, I guess, inspirations, uh, not just an inspiration to me, but many people around the world, uh, Joel Sullivan. Um, you're our first uh, first uh, victim on the show. <laughs> Welcome, uh, guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, very, you're well versed in, um, in, in interviewing, so given we've been at the uh, Nutrisoils um, uh, Joel Sullivan Abundance Conference here, um, in Victoria for the last couple of days, you've uh, you've been drilled. So uh, <laughs> it's been two days later, and um, you're on the home stretch. So I really appreciate that you're you're giving me your time today, Joel. So thank you for uh, thank you for your time. Absolutely, it's an honour and a delight to to be with you, Joel. Um, where do we start? Um, probably at the beginning. What <laughs> what? Um, how you, you, you relate a number of stories over the last couple of days about your your childhood and I guess your your introduction to agriculture at a very young age. Can you step us through that interesting period of your life and, and where that then took you? Well, sure. Yeah, I guess it would start with uh, you know my dad, who as a little uh, Midwestern American boy wanted to farm, but with no land and no money. You know how do you how do you start? I mean, this is uh, you know 1940s, 
And so uh, then, of course, World War II came, and he flew uh, flew in the Navy and uh, survived. And um, then after World War II, he went on a GI Bill, got his degree in economics from Indiana University, and then uh, went to Middlebury in Vermont for six months and studied Spanish, and then hitchhiked from Vermont to Mexico, spent six months, and then came back and immediately sat for the foreign civil service exam um, in, in Spanish. And uh, what he found was he was great with numbers. And uh, at that time, this is, you know, 47, post-World War II, one of the hottest, like today, it's uh, it's uh, information technology, right? IT, that's the hot, hot thing. Well, at that time, it was bilingual accountants to go with American oil exploration companies that were working in the Middle East and in um, and in Venezuela and what what would eventually become the OPEC uh, countries to develop uh, petroleum sources, and the the heavy work was done, of course, by the indigenous folks in the country, and management was American folks who spoke English, and the the, the places of conflict were always between the workers and management regarding money, payroll, company store, those kinds of things. And so they really wanted a bilingual person handling the money. And so this 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 was a very specific, um, probably that run on those jobs only lasted maybe, what, five or six years? But dad got in on it right on the, on the front end and, um, and went down as a bilingual accountant with Texas Oil Company in to Venezuela. And um, it took him 10 years. You know, he got came back and got married. Um, he and mom had met at, at Indiana University and um, went back down. It took him 10 years to save up enough money to buy a thousand acre Highlands farm in Venezuela. And uh, immediately cleared some land. Uh, I mean, this was this was monkeys and pineapple and bananas, right? Uh, it was the, it was it was but it was upland tropics. It wasn't down low. And um and built a house and started raising chickens. And uh, the, the dream was dairy and meat chickens. That was, that was the dream. That was what he saw the people needed or they didn't have very much. And so uh, chickens was, of course, the, the quickest first thing. Started raising chickens. And uh, the, the indigenous um, chickens there all had... Uh, what was known as a, a mucus drip or a nasal drip in their beaks because they all had kind of a, a respiratory problem from unsanitary conditions. And that created this snot <laughs> nasal drip. <laughs> and, uh, and so there, you know, this is before refrigeration. This is, you know, 50s, 1950s, Venezuela. And um, the way the food culture went, you know, the local farmers would come into the town square, you know, the Latin American food court, town square, vendors then would dicker with the farmers over, you know, buying stuff. And then they, and then those vendors would then take them into town and go door to door uh, and sell them to the, to the people in town who would then buy supper, basically. Okay. This happened almost every day and, or there was something like this happening every day. And, uh, so, you know, you'd have the pineapple man, the banana man, the, the chicken man, the rice man, the, you know, whatever. Uh, and um, the, there was enough food knowledge that the senoras who would buy supper 
when the chicken man came, uh, they would run their finger down the beak of the chicken to check for snot, snot <laughs> for nasal drip, right? And of course, if the, the the cleaner the beak was, the healthier the chicken was, and that of course made the price go up. So of course, you know, er, there's no price tags dangling on chickens, right? So it's all negotiation, and um, and of course, then this this knowledge backed up to the vendors who then dickered with farmers for the cleanest chickens because they wanted customers who could trust them to bring them the cleanest chickens. This is all, you know, a pretty self-governing type of, of um, auto- automatic feedback loop, if you will. And, um, and so because all the indigenous chickens, you know, ran through pretty unsanitary conditions and had this condition, uh, we controlled ours and um, kept them in pretty sanitary place. And so ours didn't have any of this drippage. And, so very quickly, Dad, um, Dad actually cornered the market, the local market, because these vendors, oh my, these are clean chickens, and well, these, drip, these dripless chickens, these dripless chickens, yeah, 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 and and of course, what's funny is the other farmers that raised chickens that were selling chickens, they lost market, but instead of asking, well, how do you do this? They immediately accused us of witchcraft. We we were doing well. They said voodoo. We were doing voodoo um, because they didn't understand it, didn't know how this could be done. But they accused us of voodoo. And um, so anyway, we were you know we were rocking along here, and then here came 1959. The uh, junta, uh, Perez was um, you know under threat and from power, and there was a, a revolution. And because of this, we didn't have support from neighbors. In fact, we were disliked by the the, the neighbors uh, because of this, and because we were Americans, and we were not no longer were we affiliated with any you know diplomat, corporation, missionary. You know, we were just out there, and so we became prime targets of the just the un the, the frustration in the countryside. You know, everybody's mad at everybody. Let's be mad at somebody, and we were easy to be mad at. And so basically, we fled the back doors. The machine guns came in the front door, and um, lost everything. Of course, Dad had put all of his savings into that farm, you know, into that land, and and um, so we 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 fled and we went and lived in a couple of towns. Ended up in Caracas uh, toward the end, as Dad met with every every sitting, you know, the agriculture secretary, the secretary of the interior, the secretary of the treasury, you got all these, you know, cabinet levels. Dad met with every one of them trying to get, look, you know, I have a deed here. You should protect me. And of course they were afraid they'd be assassinated. Uh, and, um, and, and the local constable and all those people, all they worked on was bribes. How much do you pay me? You know, Senor Saladin. And dad said, look, you know, I have a deed here. You're, you know, you're supposed to protect me. And uh, it just didn't work that way. And so finally, after, you know, 14 months or so of dead ends, there was nothing to do but come back to the U.S. and walk away from it. And um, that affected, dad never got over that. Uh, He was 41, you know, when he did that, when that happened, Um, because he loved the people, he loved the country, he loved everything about it. He left his heart there. But today, looking back, I mean, that's what's going on in Venezuela today. You know, I'm thinking with his genius capacity, you know, we probably would have been very successful and we would have 
whatever, built a thriving business that today would, of course, just been demolished like so many businesses have. So I'm very grateful that we were stopped early in the process and not late in the process. And, you know, I think that has colored a lot of my a lot of my life in um, looking at uh, whatever setbacks we'll just call them setbacks you could call them failures but we didn't fail it was just a setback you know there's nothing that we could or could not have done about it and um, and you know, so many times when a setback occurs, oh, you know, the sky is falling. How are we ever going to recover? You know, it's it's a horrible thing. But lots of times, lots of times when you look back on it 5, 10, 15 years later, you're, ooh, that setback, that was a tension point that that led us to a better place. And so, you know, we just move forward in faith, not in fear. And... Um, and trust that that's going to happen. So, uh, so we we came we came back to the states. We settled um, then in we we came back um, Easter Sunday, um, uh, nineteen sixty one. I was four. I was four. My older brother was three. Uh, was eight, and um, and my sister was in the oven. And, and, and so we came we came back and dad was still actually hoping to go back he was hoping things settled down maybe we can go back and so kind of reluctantly he said well let's you know let's let's look at farms within you know a day's drive of dc in case the ambassador calls us and um and and you know then we can go and we can make changes real fast so we did that we looked at farms within about a day's drive of dc and uh, it came down to two farms, um, the one where we are and another one. And, um, and I said, there we, my sister was in the ovens. Mom was, what, seven months pregnant with my sister. And with all the turmoil we'd been through, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, you could, it was a bad situation. And the one farm, which... You know, um, mom and dad always said, I, I don't remember it. I was just four. You know, we just looked at it, right? They always said it was a it was a better place. You know, it was a nice, had big old brick farmhouse and stuff. But the man that was selling it was an 80-year-old bachelor. And he had like eight dogs living in the house. And mom just, you know, said, I... I'm not I, doing I, that. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> but the the farm where we are now went into the house. It was owned by an elderly um, uh, kind of a Swiss couple, and um, and it it was you can move in tomorrow. It was clean, mm-hmm. and 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 so we we so we we picked that one. And the the farm itself, the the house was okay, I guess. And, yeah, the house the house was okay. The, it, state it, of, the state of the farm itself. Yeah, it, the house had been modernized in 1949 by a wealthy family who had bought it and um, and salvaged it. It, it, it was an old um, American chestnut log cabin built in 1790. Wow. Uh, it was in serious disrepair. One of the chimneys had three chimneys. One of the chimneys had fallen off the end. Um, cows were living in it. Sheep were living in it. And it was, you know, probably another 10 years it would have been unsalvageable. But these folks, uh, you know, they were moneyed and they, saw the potential and so they put a lot of money in it obviously put electricity in it plumbing yeah they 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 saved the house Mm -hmm. and um and but the farm uh the farm was the only one in the whole area 
that had gone out of its original family, uh, it, it was it was caught up in a, a state you know five kid sibling deal, eighteen ninety, and um, and these two pieces went, three pieces went to the three brothers, and they each lived on their three pieces. These two pieces went to the two sisters who married guys, moved out of the area, and then eventually sold it. And so for roughly 45 years there, from 1900 to 1945, roughly, uh, the farm was uh, what we have. Uh, it was the, the, the people who owned it did not live there. And so they leased it to neighbors who just raped it. I mean, they, you know, they, they had this deal where, um, where they would 50-50 share the fertilizer bill uh, every spring. And, um, and of course, all the local um, farmers, you know, they would, they would uh, get, apparently take turns you know, renting it for a few years. And, uh, and anyway, um, the joke when we got there and we you know, got talking to some of the neighbors, the joke was that these guys throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, would take that fertilizer check. I mean, the landlord didn't live there. So they would take the fertilizer, the, the, the 50% that the landlord was paying, and they'd buy it for their own places. And so our place just got nothing, no, it was just exploited for all those years. So by the time we came, there were 16-foot deep gullies. There were large areas, you know, the size of a house that were just solid bedrock uh, between three and eight feet of topsoil had washed off, you know, over the, you know, over 200 years of, of, of European plowing and occupation. And then finally, the, the final, you know, exclamatory um, abuse of this 45 years of, of, of neighbor exploitation. And um, it was in rough shape. It was in really rough. In fact, it, we had so little soil when dad started doing this electric fence stuff, moving the cows around. We didn't have enough soil to hold up electric fence stakes. So he went to town and got used car tires, brought them home, mixed concrete in a wheelbarrow, put it in the car tires, pushed a, a half-inch uh, pipe down in the middle of it, and would make these stanchions, or, you know, uh, like standards, like, like a volleyball court, you know, volleyball net. And uh, he'd stack those up on the tractor platform. And my brother and I, you know, we were, what, five, five and eight, six and nine, and um, he would drive slowly, and we could we could heave these off on the ground on the rock as Dad drove slowly. Then he'd go along and put the electric fence stakes down on those half inch pipes, and that's how we that's how we made electric fence. So it was not in it, no, not anymore. <laughs> no, all those rocks are covered now with you know at least a foot of soil. It's not three feet, but it's a foot. We don't use the tires anymore. And there's soil everywhere. Uh, you can still see them when we have a drought. You still, when you have a drought, you can, it's just like a line that goes out those shale, those shale scallops and those banks, and it's just like you took a pencil, and you can see those those shallow areas. And Joel, what else is on the farm for those who haven't read your books and seen Polyface? Is a wonderful documentary that. Um, uh, Darren Doherty and Lisa Heen put together a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't seen it, um, grab a copy. It's fantastic. Um, what else? What else? What other enterprises have you got there? Yeah. So uh, so we do we do um, grass finished beef. Um, we call it piggerator pork. Uh, so we do pork uh, pigs too, um, and then uh, broilers, pastured uh, meat chickens, mm-hmm. egg chickens, and turkeys and ducks and lamb 
and rabbit. I think that's. You I, got think, I think that's. I, I said turkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, no, it's, no escargot. No escargot. No llamas, <laughs> ostriches. You know, nothing exotic. It's all. Uh, it's all kind of every man. Every man stuff. And you call there's a stacking. There's an expression you use. It's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so a given acre, um, at different times of the year, would have you know cows across it a couple of times, and uh, uh, egg. Uh, we use egg mobiles. Um, this is these are uh, portable chicken houses, where chickens free range out and they scratch through the cow patties and eat out the fly larvae and spread the cow patties out in the field. Uh, so the eggmobiles follow the cows, um, and then we'll use those same fields to raise uh, the pastured turkeys, uh, pastured broilers. And the point is, when you when you stack all those enterprises on, uh, you know you're you're up there into the you know twelve thousand dollars an acre uh, that that you're getting back from all those symbiotically complementary stacked enterprises. Um, let's swing to regenerative agriculture, Joel. As a, it's a reasonably new term, I guess, that sort of encompasses a number of different practices, and you're you're utilising quite a few of those um, practices. Um, what's what's your definition of regenerative ag? Is there a definition? <laughs> uh, well, I think I think a lot of people are are um, you know working on such a thing. Uh, my, I'm a pretty simple guy, so my simple uh, explanation is it is any kind of agriculture that increases the commons rather than depleting the commons. Beautiful. Some people will say, well, commons, you know, we don't use that word very much. But it's a wonderful British, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, has its seat in, in British um, jurisprudence. The, the commons was the area that was owned in common. It was it was the place that peasants could actually go and graze a cow or or you know pick some berries or whatever, as opposed to the the nobleman's lands, which were of course off limits. And so the commons speaks of air, soil, water, and I would even suggest um, um, community camaraderie. Uh, there's there's more than just physical structure here in the commons. And so you know, it speaks to the, the community social uh, aspects as well, mm. but but that 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 increases the common. So this is stuff that was here before we're here. It should be here before after we're here. It's the, it's the stuff. It it it's the ultimate wealth of a nation that our children inherit. You know, it's it's not Disney toys and 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 whatever stock market mm. pieces of paper. It's it's the actual foundations of life. And, um, and so regenerative agriculture, to me, simply is, is a system that leaves more of that behind than was there when it started. And Joel, what, I mean, I trust that, uh, that you know, I know there are a lot of farmers in Australia, at least, who are looking to transition, that, you know, there's my sense of there's a push away from industrial conventional agriculture, and I, I was one of those farmers as well, Um and there's a push away from that type of farming, and there's a pull towards this new kind of regenerative farming, and that encompasses, as you say, it's regenerative communities and, mm-hmm. and, and mental state and, and mm-hmm. um, all those sorts of things. How, like, what are, what, are, what are some of the, um, the benefits, you know, 
that farmers who who, tra- who are transitioning who are thinking about this what what's the carrot we can dangle mm. you know to sort of i guess give them a sense of comfort that um you know it's not all voodoo it's not there's there's actually some some great benefits in this well there are you know when you think about what the average farmer is frustrated about what what vexes your spirit okay um you know it's 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 feeling like you can't get ahead of disease. That that's one vexation of the average farmer. That that you know whether it's in livestock or in plants, um, there's always some new disease popping up. You know I just can't get ahead of it. Uh, secondly, I would say a frustration in in normal farming is just the frustration that I. I can't get ahead of my fertility. My fertility costs too much. Uh, it, it costs too much to get the same value of crop. Another one is that my my input costs are constantly escalating and my, my sales income is either flat or diminishing. I'm, I'm on this treadmill, you know, and, 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 and all this. And, and then, of course, you've got equipment, you've got other things. And so I, for, for me, uh, and I will tell you this for dad, uh, you know, my, my dad was an economist. That was what his training was in. And so interestingly to me, he came to this as an economist in the 60s, you know, back, goodness, in the 50s. Um, he saw the chemical approach as essentially a, a drug addiction. You know, I, 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 I'm on this treadmill. I need a, I need a, a more expensive hit to get the same whatever uh, you know feeling benefit, and so um, and so he came to this primarily not as an ecologist, but as an economist, saying how do we create a a system in which the in which the difference between the inputs the the cost and the income widens you know rather than you know gets closer and closer, and so the idea of actually. I think our carrot then is that when you actually build um, uh, resilient soil fertility, it doesn't take as much to keep it up. It 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 becomes a self-perpetuating system. The biology grabs nitrogen from the air. I mean, the azotobacter bacteria. Uh, I mean, there's all this stuff that starts to happen, and it happens as a partner to you, not as an antagonist to you. And, and that's a huge thing. I, I think too that that diseases, um, you know, immunological function in your animals, diseases in your plants, as the soil gets better, those things reduce. I mean, you know, we, we have a, we have eleven hundred head of cattle on our farm, which is you know not the biggest thing in the world, but it's you know it's up there in the top in our area for sure. Uh, and we probably don't see a vet. Once every three years, we, we we do not even have a line item for vet bills. You know, it doesn't even exist, and and, and it's not because we're burying all of our cows. It's be, it's because we don't have very much disease. You'd compost them anyway. We, we would, we would if we if we yeah if we have a dead one we compost it. But you know it it's such a difference. Um, it, it's such a difference to wake up in the morning and not have the first thought be. I wonder what's wrong. Mm. Rather, to be able to step into functional, beautiful abundance, and and not have that little voice on your shoulder saying, "I'll bet something's wrong out there. I'll bet there's a fungus. I'll bet there's a root rot. I'll bet there's something." 
And uh, I, I think to me that is that's just incalculable. And what about the economic um, benefits or the, the positive impact that that it's it, it is for for farmers operating this way? Well, obviously, if you if you get if you get nature, if you stop fighting nature and and you and you see nature as a partner, where you're 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 you know you're kind of um, hand in hand going the same direction, um, it takes a lot less energy, a lot less money to to fight nature than to get nature working with you in your favor, and uh, for a person. You know, hearing this, who's in the orthodox paradigm, that sounds like a pipe dream. I, I know it does. I know it does. Um, but you know, uh, just think about just think about how frustrating it was maybe when you were looking for a spouse, and you said, "Isn't there one out there for me?" And then you finally found the one, and suddenly, oh. Yeah, this is pretty cool, and, and I would just encourage people to th- to let that metaphor, you know, work in you a little bit. Um, it is frustrating when things aren't right, uh, and you don't have that 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 pairing yet. Mm. But when you get to the right pairing, uh, it's 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 a beauty. It, it's a symbiotic thing. So I guess there's there's cost savings because you're not calling the vet out. Mm-hmm. as often and you know animal husbandry treatments may be reduced because you're relying not relying on but you're partnering with nature to provide essentially the health you know through pasture and soil health um the other side of the equation is the is the production the income the the revenue from that i mean um not every farmer who's who's uh even thinking about regenerative agriculture yeah, you know, I want to be clear that it's not a. That doesn't mean you've got to go and value out everything, and that's part of the deal. You know, there's sort of there's lots of ways to do it, but there's obviously for those who want to sort of really change the pattern of their income stream. You know, there's, there's income. Well, yeah. Well, listen, listen. You know, um, I'm I'm on the last day of a 26 day multi country tour. I've been in I've been in Germany, France, Spain, Menorca. Gold Coast, Perth, and now in Wodonga, where we're doing this um, this interview. And as I leave now and go home tomorrow from this extended trip and, and many countries, I'm thinking, what what have I seen? What's the you know what's a thread? What you know what am I going to take away from this trip? And I think since this trip was done at the time of year when it was done, of course Europe was in the spring. Here we're in going into the winter. Um, but, but if there's one common thread of every place I've been, everything I've seen, it's flogged pasture and a few cows in a great big field. That, that is a consistent thread or sheep, or, but, but a, few, a few head of animals in a great big field and, and all the pastures flogged into the ground, basically. I mean, they're, they're like a golf, they're shorter than a golf course. That is a common theme through every place. And so um, so by using high-tech electric fencing and you know uh, modern water piping, we can actually create, for the first time in human history, um, we, we can create a simple, cheap infrastructure 
that allows us to essentially put a steering wheel, a brake, and an accelerator on that four-legged um, biomass pruner. And we can steer that herd, that cow, that sheep, we can steer them around the landscape with absolute precision to, to capitalize on the, uh, well, on the, on the sigmoid curve grass growth uh, of grass and, and how it grows in its uh, stages of, of fast growth, slow growth, and senescence. And, 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 we, and we can work with that biomass expression, if you will. And, um, and uh, a couple days ago, I was in Perth and uh, talking with a farmer and for example, and they had uh, 350 cows in five herds, and um, and his he said his obstacle, his weak link was time. And I said, I asked him, I said, so when all those cows are calving, how much time do you spend checking cows? Well, he spends most of a day, every day. I mean, five herds, he's got to go look at them, find them, check them, all that. And I can, I can tell you, if you put all of them together and put them in a mob, uh, in, a, in, a, in a small paddock with an electric fence around it, and you move them every day, you will change that daily time to less than 30 minutes. You, you can find your cows, find the calves, see what's going on. You know, you're not searching around, you're finding them. And so for me, one of the, this, this is not organic, regenerative, inorganic. This is, this is, this is simply, this is simply um, uh, a, 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 a protocol of efficiency and common sense. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, that sometimes we let the discussion trail off into some sort of, you know, uh, moral, you know, sanctity area when actually we have the technology to to become way, way more efficient than we are. And even if you're just in the trade, you're, you know, you're just calving cows and you're just raising them and you're just selling them into the sale barn trade, um, it's worth getting this level of control, not just for what it does ecologically, but just as a major time saving. Yeah. A management tool. A management tool. You see everything every day. Doesn't take that long. I mean, my return to labor, moving the cows every day, people, people say, uh, you know, how do you, how you, can you take all that time to, to move cows every day? I mean, it takes 20 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, I see everyone go by, you know, but of course in our community, the average farmer, you know, they've all got their, they've all got their little uh, chaw of tobacco, you know, down in their down in their lip. You know, they all they all kind of talk like this, you know, a little bit of tobacco. Have and you they, tried that tobacco? No, I haven't. Oh, I haven't. It's awful. It yeah, looks awful. Don't swallow. No, oh. don't swallow. But 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 you know, they'll say they'll say, move cows every day. My goodness, <laughs> we tried to get the cows in last week, and we we had three, four wheelers, two pickup trucks. Two dogs, all but cousins and aunts and uncles. We spent all day trying to get them in. You know, we never did get two of them. They got stuck back there behind the old gully. We never did get them in. I can't imagine moving cows every day. You know, that's <laughs> that's that, you know, that's the paradigm. Yeah. That's the paradigm. And and the thing is, 
you know, the animals respond to routine. They respond to that, you know, and listen, if you go out about the same time every day, if you, at four o'clock every day, we, we try to move them around four o'clock every day. And uh, if you got called to a bowl of ice cream every day about four, along about 3.45, you know, your ears would twitter and your tail would twitch <laughs> and you'd stand up and, and be ready, you know, for that call. And so it's really not that hard. And why four o'clock? It just is, is that defeating with other things or that's when they're... What's oh, the- yeah. They're, well, um, there are a lot of reasons for four. Um a couple one is that's the highest bricks reading in the grass of the day nice. so it's a high high bricks because the, the the sugar goes up in the day and comes back down at night number two there's no dew so you don't have a compromised digestion for bloat and things like that so everything is dry so you get really really good uh, fermentation in the rumen and the third is that in the summer um if you movement four, you are trending into into cooler temperatures. If you move them in the morning, when the sun comes up and it gets hot, even if they're not full, they're going to want to go ahead for a shade tree and quit. But at four, it's just going to get more and more and more comfortable to graze all through, and finally end. You know, nine ten o'clock the next morning. Well, by that time they're chuck full. They can't eat anymore anyway. So they just go lounge and then you move them again at four. They have a camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just camp out till you move them again at four. So you maximize the the comfortable grazing time of the day. Again, sort of common sense stuff. Isn't yeah, it, it, really? it is common sense. And your your example of the, the, the farmer in WA where she um, you suggested to putting those mobs together, I mean, I guess not even having to put new fences up, just – putting those mobs together, which is opening a gate and moving them in sure. without that doesn't cost a bit of time, but that's actually that impact alone is enormous, isn't it? You know? And then there'd be other you know, subsequent paddock changes potentially, but that just simple principle of of, of high density, higher yeah. density. You know? Yeah, higher density. Well I'll tell you, we we lease about twelve properties uh, in the in the immediate community. Uh, and so you know, we've been we've been doing this now for almost twenty five years, where we've been leasing leasing land, and um, and so we've developed what I'm we've developed with fencing and water. Um, when I say fencing, I mean a single strand of electric fence mm-hmm. on a simple little post. You know, this isn't big, high tensile, expensive stuff. It's 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 really really simple, and um, uh, we've developed you know all these properties over the years, and. Wet year, drought year, doesn't matter. We have not yet come to a single property and developed it where we didn't double its production in the first 12 months. Double. Now, that costs us in materials. It costs us about $45 an acre. To, even if we have to build a pond or whatever, you know, to do to do water development and electric and the, and the 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 the, the uh, permanent cell design. Now we use portables, you know, uh, throughout. But but the the basic permanent design, you know, the laneways, the waterways, things like that, um, fenced out, costs about forty five to fifty dollars an acre in materials, and about the same amount in time. Mm-hmm. If if you want to pay for your labor, so say a hundred bucks an acre. If you can, if you can double your production for a for a one time capital expenditure of a hundred bucks an acre, so this isn't like fertilizer, 
that, that you, you just have to keep maintenance. This is a one-time capital investment. If you can double your production for a one-time capital investment of $100 an acre, that is equivalent to buying land for $100 an acre. Totally. Yeah. And I haven't seen any $100 an acre land for sale lately. And that's, but that's every year. Like you double it in the first year and then right. you maintain that. And then you maintain it. Yeah, it doesn't go you, back. You have got, it doesn't go back. essentially farming uh, ver- vertically. Yeah, well, you're, yeah, well, you're, you, you've, you, you've taken, you've taken a 500 acre place mm-hmm. and you've made it equivalent to a thousand every single year. With a one-off. With, with a one-off capital investment. investment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Talking about investment and, and economics, Joel. Um, what are some of the skills you think farmers need to learn or need to have to you know, retain their relevance in you know, the future economy? You know, the, mm. the, 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 you know, I guess, you know, the, where, where this industrial agriculture is the main, the main type of agriculture. Um, those, you know, farmers thinking to transition and, and really remain relevant in any um, uh, in any context, you know, what do they need to know? What are some of the skills they need? Well, I, I think it's no different than any other business. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we farmers, we tend to think we're in a special business because we deal with, you know, weather and all this stuff. But, but and, and I, you know, look, farming is, is more than a business. Sure, of course, it's more than a business. It's unique, isn't it? it, it, it like we're it, living in our business. Yeah, yeah, we are. But but it is still a business. Totally. So 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 if there's a if there's an across the board business principle that applies, it probably applies to farmers too. And I, I would say, uh, you know, some of the things that farmers need to know uh, is first of all the ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to communicate with your your spouse, your children, uh, people, you know, your team, your neighbors. I mean. Uh, um, and, and communication is typically not taught in Ag 101. Absolutely <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> we, farmers just what? No. What is that? Yeah, we? yeah, yeah. We, we farmers, we we generally, uh, well, we don't even like people, you know. <laughs> and, and and so so um, so just just um, learning to communicate to to appreciate um, how to you know. Uh, wrestle over mission statements, how to create um, expectations for each other and for the other members of the team, these sorts of things. Um, you know, communication is just, just huge. Um, and you, know, you don't have to be an orator, but, but you know, you, you have to be, I think the first step of communication is first you have to be comfortable in your own skin. Mm. Um, people that aren't comfortable comfortable in their own skin don't talk, because that that makes you vulnerable. But if you're comfortable in your own skin, I mean, if you're if you're happy with what you're doing, if you're uh, if you're not trying to hide, if you think what you're doing is 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 whatever sacred, if it's noble, if it's good, then then um, you don't have to be embarrassed about vulnerability. You know, it's it's all okay. So so how, how does someone how does someone get comfortable with them with themselves like what like because that is a, that is a major you know i guess yeah. it's, a, you know, it's a mental hurdle almost isn't it so well it how is does one you know what work on themselves to get to that point any sort of insight yeah well i think you have to find your soul and uh finding your soul means um letting yourself 
be free enough to dream. We don't, we don't, um, we don't encourage dreaming. We encourage obligatory uh, performance. We encourage, um, you know, uh, do your homework. Uh, that I've assigned, right? Uh, we encourage obey me or whatever. You know, we, we, um, we this is what we, we grow up doing. We, we grow up, you know, trying to please mom and dad and and uh, uncles and aunts and, and extended family and then teachers and then professors and then employers and and um, uh, I, I think I think that discovering who. What really floats my boat? What what do I want written on my on my tombstone? What if I could if I could say what I want my ten closest friends to say about me? What would that be? I mean, these are these are kind of pump primer questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what they do is they they help us to discover who we are and. Um, and you know what? It's okay to have weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. And so part of discovering who we are is where am I strong, where am I weak? Mm-hmm. And and rather than, you know, be uh, frustrated at our weakness, the idea is to leverage our strength and find partners who can help us where we're weak. I mean, that's the whole idea of, of the the strengths finder, uh, you know, business protocol. And I think there's there's a lot to that. But, um, yeah, I think that this, this really knowing who we are and being willing to wrestle with our inner, our inner person, um, what floats my boat? What gets me up in the morning? What, what would I do if I never got a paycheck? Um, those are things that can help us discover our, our soul, which then helps us to move, helps us to move to a, um, a place in our farm business that that is comfortable in that in that soul. Um, look, you know, if if you don't like animals, you shouldn't be raising animals. You know, if what you really like is trees, then how can you you know how can you transition to trees? I mean, I'm just throwing something out there, but um, but that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff and. I'm convinced that, um, well, in the in the in the 2012 book, um, the regrets of the dying, uh, the number one regret in all the surveys, the number one regret was, I wish I'd have had the courage to do what I really wanted to do. That's a that's a profound regret and a profound insight into deathbed wishes. And so if that's the if that's the most common thing, then you know, let's see if we can fix that early. And, and I'd suggest that a farm, you know, nature is a is a ideal place to find one's soul, you know? Like I guess it's yeah. I guess one of the things where people I find or I feel my sense is people get lost is they just you know, they've lost a connection with nature which is really, and we are part of nature, so we lose that connection with ourselves. But we're actually within; we're in the perfect environment to tap back in and get a get a you know a direct injection of the good stuff of nature to then go right. Well, who who I am in this world, you know? I mean, I guess that's 
that's my sense. So we're we're really blessed, I think, as farmers to to be in a position mm. to, to to be on the spot. You know, I mean, I can imagine. I totally get it. You know, people you know not on farms in cities, urban areas who are a little lost. You know, and and and, yeah. and haven't found their centre because you know their centre. My centre is being in nature. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure if I were a yoga instructor, I, I would have a. You know, I'd have a protocol there too. Uh, It'd be very stretchy, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. <laughs> it would. It'd be pretty stretchy. But 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 I think I think generally we. We have to, we have to let our our minds slow down. Uh, we, you know, in, in business sometimes we we talk about the difference between Whitby and Watby. You know, working in the business, working on the business, and our minds are racing with this with this um, with this list with this to do list, right? Our minds are racing with this to do list, and. It actually takes effort. You you actually have to put attention on putting a comma in your mental frenzy. That's one re- that's one reason I promote a lot for farm families rather than thinking about taking a you know a two week holiday and, and just putting all your attention frenzying throughout the year so you can take a two week holiday. Rather find a spot on your place. I mean, it could be. 200 yards from the house behind a little clump of trees. I don't care where it is, but find a spot that you can have a little campfire. You can have a couple benches and, um, you know, once a month, take the family out there, cook some hot dogs, roast some marshmallows, whatever, you know, that you enjoy doing. You know, if you've got a, a campfire type uh, popcorn maker, you know, do that. But um, two hours Two hours of undevoted attention in the quiet toward each other will do worlds because it's a comma in your life, and you have to schedule those commas in your life. You have to you have to plan and and take those times. But if they don't have the beauty of this is it doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be time. And you think about kids growing up. Think about your growing up. What do you remember? You remember those times. When dad and mom seemed unfrenzied, those are the most special times of of children's lives, and so we have to do that for families. <laughs> well, that was a classic, um, Joel. Commas in our life. Yeah, um, you. Related wonderful story um, a couple of times in the last few days about uh, different venues mm-hmm. um, when you were dropped from the, the baseball team. Mm. Why, you said that was a real turning point. Why was that a turning point? Yeah, so, you know, uh, my mom was a, was a, was a phys ed teacher, um, you know, athletic standout in high school and college. My older brother was uh, a real standout athlete. So, you know, here comes the little brother coming along, you know, and there's this kind of expectation you know that okay you know you're gonna at least compete you know there's gonna be some sort of fair competition and so um so i went out for the um baseball team in seventh grade and i didn't make it i got cut and i went out for the basketball team in eighth grade and i got cut i didn't make it i was a that's what you call a slow boomer slow boomer slow bloomer um i was kind of pudgy you know at that time it took me a little bit to to bulk up, you know, and 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 uh, get my get my muscles, and um, 
And so anyway, uh, I had I had already previously had a little bit of success in uh, reading poetry, poetry contests, spelling bees, doing some stuff. And I had a, I had a, a love, a flair of writing and stuff. And um, so I made a pretty, pretty definite decision after that second cut. Hang this. I'm never going to play another. Now, I mean, sure, you know, sunny afternoon, backyard football. Yeah, but but I'm not going to play sports at all. I'm going to put all my attention on communication, uh, you know, this this communication, uh, writing, speaking, all that mm-hmm. stuff that, that, that I clearly had a, a, a passion for and, and a talent for. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful uh, that that happened because if it hadn't, um, I wouldn't have had this wonderful background. So I went into, you know, I was, I was played the lead in all the high school plays, got a debate team, uh, through college as well. Um, you know, entered, entered essay contests. I never entered an essay contest. I didn't win throughout high school mm-hmm. and college, got scholarships, all this. And so, um, and, and in fact, in high school, then, uh, two year, 11th and 12th grades of high school, I worked um, Saturday nights at the local newspaper as the night receptionist. I'd go in. It was it was a Sunday morning paper, so I'd go in Saturday afternoon and um, answer the phone, do police reports, write obituaries. You know, it was this humdrum. But but um, if I'd have been playing sports, I would have never been able to do that. And um, so anyway, all I'm saying, I'm just telling young people, hey. You know, if you get, if, if you fail at something, don't be angry about it. Simply, simply make a little turn and, and turn your, turn your attention onto what you're good at and, and, and let those, let those be little signposts that help guide you to where your real talent is. And, um, you know, I remember very well when I, when I came back to the farm full time, all of my, you know, debate and buddies and forensics buddies in, in college and the professors, you know, oh, they just, they just were so frustrated that I was throwing my life away, you know, all this, all this communication talent going back to the farm. And of course, you know, in reality, I probably talk to more people today than any of them do as lawyers and doctors and all this stuff. And, um, and, and so I'm grateful for being cut from the team's because that helped to channel my energy uh, in the place where I really um, was was good. And you're still farming. It's not as though you turn into a bookworm or you're no. you, you still doing your, you know, your farming. I've uh, still got my calluses it. and my splinters. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what a what a privilege to be able to mix uh, that hands-on, dirt-under-the-fingernails vocation of farming um, with this communication ability you know um you know most 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 farmers wouldn't be able even if they had that talent wouldn't be able to exploit it because the industrial farming uh, template you know is not conducive to that generally and so by direct marketing and uh and developing a brand uh, I was comfortable in that spot, storytelling, you know, messaging and, and all the things that were necessary to 
um, to present a uh, you know a brand, an idea, and um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. After school, I think it was you went. You were, you were a forensic investigative journalist. Is that right? right? Yeah. Did, did that did that stand you in good stead for the future? Because you wrote a wonderful book called "Everything I Do Is Illegal." <laughs> you know, because you were, you were rubbing up against a few you had a few issues. Like, did that that sort of investigative? Yes, absolutely. Skill. Well, all all of that. I mean, debate is is ninety mm. percent research. Because you're researching um, evidence for your arguments, and so you know, I spent many, many a day. I mean, Dad, I mean, I didn't make the greatest grades in college, and it wasn't because I was drinking. It was because I was I was with the debate team, and and we were we were every spare minute we were researching, so we could win the next tournament, and um, and so you know, I spent many, many a day in the bowels of you know, federal government deposit, uh, depositories, uh, you know, researching, getting uh, information together. And so that, plus then the ability to formulate an argument and, and not be intimidated by a smooth-talking opposition. And then, and then at the newspaper, where I was an investigative reporter for two and a half years after college, um, and, of course, tangled with... with um, with government officials routinely. I was covering meetings. I was sleuthing the story behind the story, you know, what's really going on here. Uh, and there's a lot of things behind the story. Uh, and, and so all of those things added up to where uh, when we did begin tangling with some regulatory pushback uh, from the bureaucracy, I didn't just cave like most people would and just be intimidated, I I was able to um, not only have the confidence, but have the you know have the understanding of, of who to call. You know the congressman, the the senator, the whatever you know needed to call um, in order to you know help navigate the labyrinth. Do you, do you think that farmers? I mean, can take a me- I guess a, a message from that, or a, you know a, that. They have skills that they may that they you know learn at university or at school or in other jobs and now they're farming they're not using. I mean, I, my sense is that there's it's a, a lot of untapped history uh, knowledge. Oh, you know? oh, a- absolutely. Uh, listen, you know, I love farmers. Farmers are, you know, we have to be expert in a lot of things, and um, and so yeah, there's a lot of talent in the farming community. But I think too often it's um, it's not leveraged, mm-hmm. and it, it and it, I mean, there are certainly farmers that could be you know you you could you could uh, be in the local theater group you know you could you could uh, volunteer at the tourist center you could you know goodness you know read stories at the library for kids I mean there 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 are any number of things that that we can do and and I. I just think that it's tragic that we have this. I'll tell you that you know this is this is a, a, a I think a societal indictment that we I think as a, as a, a highly developed, sophisticated techno glitzy culture, um, we have uh, created this mystique of the 
the the kind of the peasant farmer. You know, look if it, you know when's the last time you heard uh, a rising senior go to the to the guidance counselor at school for curriculum, you know, uh, uh, a council, and the guidance counselor looks and says, "Wow, Sally, man, you you've got really great grades. You are smart. Yeah, you should be a farmer." <laughs> you know, when, when's the last time you've heard that? We're laughing, but it's sad, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is sad. It is sad. And and, and society uh. sits here and complains about. Uh, you know, resources not being cared for and uh, lack of innovation in farming and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And 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 then they expect the farmer to be the peasant and drive a jalopy and all this. You know, I, and I, when I speak at urban foodie groups, I say, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror deep down and tell yourself that you're you really would like to see your farmer come to farmer's market in a Mercedes Benz. And if you can't honestly say that to yourself, you need to examine what your problem is. Now, I'm not saying materials is everything, okay? But but that's the mentality. Totally. That's that's the mentality. And um and, and I think that that we farmers have allowed ourselves. I, I fuss it when I talk to farmers and they all come in like a bunch of hayseeds. I say, look, guys, I say, if you want respect, you have to dress like respect. So when you go to farmer's market, wear a tie. Spruce up. Spruce up a little bit. Get a get a suit if you need to. And, um, and, and you know, I... It's amazing. I've done so many. I've done everything from Bloomberg News to, you know, to ABC Nightly News to whatever. And um, every time I walk into those those uh, high-powered, you know, urban studio, TV studios in my suit and tie, first thing I say is, well, where's your hat and your jeans? You know, they all want you to come as this redneck hick. This is, well, I don't know. I didn't, didn't, didn't know. <laughs> They're disappointed when you turn up. Yeah, yeah. I say, no, um, I'm, a, I'm a farmer CEO, mm -hmm. and I'm standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with any CEO in the country. Bring them on. And, and you know, dress for success. Uh, um, and so, you know, people, people sense pretty quickly how you feel about yourself. Mm. And so, you know, clothes aren't everything, but... They are something. Well, they're the, they're they're your brand. That is the first they're thing you see. Your, absolutely, it's the it's the it's the wrapping. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Joel, what um, talking about the urban you know groups and and so on and and uh, eaters as I you know you and I we're feeders and there's a whole lot of eaters out there. How how can the eaters engage and and make a a real tangible positive impact? On, on the environment, on mm. on and, and their food system. I, I guess I'm really interested in the environment side of it because, um, you know, we just had a government, a, a, a federal right. election, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of debate around the state of the mm. environment, understandably. Um, but I, I couldn't help but sort of think you know, the most vocal generally are non-farmers, and that's okay. But I was thinking, mm -hmm. you know, how can they focus that energy into something that's positive and tangible you know around environment yeah well I, I have I have three three pieces of advice for the urban the, the urbanite um, 
first of all, thank you. Because without without urbanites, um, I wouldn't have any customers. So I'm glad everybody doesn't want to be a farmer. It makes you know, it makes opportunity for some of us to be farmers. So you know, first of all, I three, respect three cheers uh, to them. Three cheers, yeah, to the, to the, that's fine. And, and frankly, I like people that know how to build computers and you know make iPhones and stuff like that. Okay, and, and that's probably not going to happen out you know communing with nature in some place. All right, so uh, good on you. So the three the three things number one is is get in your kitchen. You you cannot we cannot have this profound an abdication from a visceral link with food and expect food to be authentic. You you, you can't you can't have authenticity in any sector of a civilization where there is complete ignorance about that sector. So. So you, you, you got to get in your kitchen. You, you, gotta, you, you can't just, um, you know, get stuff in cellophane and nuke it, you know, uh, single serving. And, and by the way, my litmus test of if you're getting in your kitchen is, are you eating leftovers? Because the single service, you know, the single service cellophane wrapped thing today is the trademark of, of non-communal eating, no dining room table, mm-hmm and no relation to food. And so using your kitchen to, uh, to prepare, process, package, preserve food is the heart. Home centricity mm-hmm. is the heart of an, an authentic food system. That is not a sexist statement. Men and women can both get in the, in the uh, uh, kitchen. In fact, Kevin, Kevin Lehman wrote a book, Sex Starts in the Kitchen. And, and it's all about working together in a kitchen, you know, uh, together. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of um, initial. It's foreplay. It's foreplay. Sure, yeah. it is. Sure, but so so um, uh, kitchens are cent- Kitchens are central to the food system. And I think I think too often we we think that we can segregate. Again, we we can silo this thing. We've got the farmers over here. We've got the food manufacturers over here, and and. Um, and we've got the kitchens, they're really techno-glitzy, but we don't know how to use them. And, and I'm going to roar about the environment, you know. No, 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 no. You, you got, you've got to, you got to come down off the bleachers and participate. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is do something yourself. Do something to engage in the mystical magic of biology. It can be as simple as a vermicomposting bin under your kitchen sink. It can be... Um, you know, a, a, a hanging herbal, uh, one of these uh, PVC pocketed, you know, uh, uh, herbal gardens on your patio, a beehive on the roof. Uh, okay, uh, get rid of the dog, the cat, the gerbil, and the boa constrictor and put in two chickens. All right. And the chickens will eat all your kitchen scraps and give you two egg treasures a day. I mean, what's better than that? And if you've got teenagers, there's no better role model for teenagers. Chickens get up early in the morning, happily work all day, do it preparing trash to treasure. And as soon as the sun goes down to go to bed, they don't go carousing in the town at night. I mean, it's a perfect role model for teenagers. So, 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 so do something yourself that just helps you to, to, to put you in a humble position toward, wow, this is bigger than me. Okay. And number three, so first get in your kitchen. Number two, do something yourself to, 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 to participate in the mystic the mysticalism of, of, of biology. And number three is 
identify, find your local food treasures in your community. Every community has good farmers, great farmers, and there are more today than there have ever been for a long, long time. So um, does this mean you might not be able to go to the movies Friday night? Yep, it might be mean that. Does this mean that you might um, have to forego the, you know, whatever, the entertainment square dance or whatever? Well, maybe. Mm. Um, but my favorite uh, story of this was I was in um, Toronto doing a seminar, and the other speaker was an attorney from Toronto, lived in a sixth-floor flat, high-powered attorney, six-figure income. Um, she and her husband, well, she, she had the baby. Her husband had something to do with it, but they, they had a baby, all right? And it changed their lives. You know, they said, ooh, you know, we're responsible for this little life. What, what are we going to do? And so they sat down and they brainstormed about it, and they said, you know what? Let's take one year and every hour and penny that we would have spent on entertainment, we're going to invest that for one year in finding integrity food. And so instead of going to the football game, instead of going on Disney World or whatever, they went sleuthing. Look, find, they found they found their beef farmer. They found a dairy. They found you know grain by the uh, twenty five kilo bag. Uh, you know they, they, all this stuff. And now this this has been a few years back. It probably wouldn't be maybe possible today. But um, what she said was that it took us one year, but at the end of the year, we had no barcodes in our pantry. Now, that probably wouldn't be done today, but you can appreciate yeah. 20 years ago how revolutionary that would have been. And, and, and so to me, she's my quintessential story. If she could do this, what am I waiting for? What's my problem? Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, Einstein said the definition of insanity, right, is, is doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. So many people, they want to, they want to change a trajectory. They want to, they, they want to, they want a hydrating landscape. They want, you know, uh, nutritious food. They want all this stuff, but let me just sit and eat bonbons and watch the Kardashians and, 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 and you guys just fix it. You, you guys just fix it over here. Well, you know what? There aren't any you guys. There's just us guys. And we have to fix it one at a time. And the cumulative effect of, of, um, of participatory decisions made right over time moves the needle. So get in your kitchen, do something yourself, meet your food treasure in your community. Find your farmer. Find your farmer. Um, recently, the, prior to the election, Joel, there were lots of protests, school children leaving um, you know, in school hours and, and protesting, and I totally understand why and their intention, and I and I, I think it, it it had an effect. Mm -hmm. um, my wonderful mother, um, she had a different, not a different view, an, an alternative or an additional view. She sort of looked at that and thought, well, you know what? There's a lot of energy there, a lot of not angst. It was bordering mm -hmm. on angst, you know. And, sure, sure. And to to this question about how can people make a difference, and mm -hmm. and she very simply said, well, why don't those teachers and parents? Instead of missing school and going and protesting, which has its merit, mm -hmm. put them on a bus and go down to a reserve and plant some trees, right? Or or, 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 or rehabilitate the waterway, or actually join their local land care group or bush care group. You know, chop some of, thistles. Chop, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Uh, I, your mother is a wise woman. I, 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 I I'll, I'll tell her that. I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, we, we love to, um, well, it's back to the Stephen Covey three sphere, you know, the stuff that's mm-hmm. beyond your control, sphere of influence and what you can control. And, and we love to live in that beyond our control sphere instead of focusing on, well, what can I do today? What is something that I can mm-hmm. do today? And if we really get that done right, actually our sphere of influence increases. But if we live on this outer ring of, of, of flailing away at things that are beyond our control, our sphere of influence actually shrinks. Mm. And I think that's just a profound, a profound thought. And um, I think she's exactly right. Uh, just just start, start participating in something that's very practical that you can do today. Mm. Um, you know, go out in the schoolyard, and, uh, and and plant some green beans, you know. Um, yeah. At Burrow, we have a wonderful program called the BEEP program, the Burrow Education um, Program, and it's been going for many years, award-winning, and uh, children from Sydney come down, year 10, 10, I think it is, and come down to Burrow, and year five children from Burrow teach them about farming. Mm. And, they come, and they plant trees. They've been to Hannah Minow and they've planted trees, and I think that's... Such a invaluable, um, yes. invaluable exercise, but such a good use of their time, you know. So, yes. um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity that's being missed. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the just there's those children being in nature and you know getting a few calluses and you know a few thistle thistle bites. You know, I, I think that's sure. a that's a that's a kind of good thing. Um, Joel, you are a great collaborator on 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 polyfaces on on polyface farm. And um, you mentioned the three C's the other day. Can you run us through those those little nuggets of gold? Sure, sure. So when we look for a team a team member, and, and I'm using that rather than employee, uh, just because I don't want to I don't want to limit this. Uh, but when we're looking for a partner, a team member, uh, whether they're paid or a collaborator or whatever. Uh, there are kind of three C's that every business develops as a business, and um, and one is one is a um, a, a culture. Uh, every business has a, has a certain culture. It it has it has a defining culture. Um, you know how it how it views the world, its value statements. You know uh, those kinds of things. It's it kind of its persona. Its persona. Uh, and then it each business has a um, has a community that it serves. Um, you know these are vendors, these are um, you know other obviously vendors, buyers, uh, neighbors, okay I mean there's there's all this this um, community interaction interact yeah, yeah, it's all the people you're interacting with, okay, this community. And then the final is every business has has a certain character. Um, uh, these are the things that define our our, our integrity, our uh, you know what what's what's important to us as a business, and um, and so so culture, community, character, uh, those three have to fit. So, for example, at at Polyface, if we're putting out a plea for a Let's just say a delivery driver. That's that's one we've had to do because our old one retired last year. So, 
and and let's say we get uh, we get you know ten responses and we decide to interview four of them. Uh, so we tell them to come out to the farm. You know, we'll do an interview, and we go out and greet them. And we look in, and there's a McDonald's cup in the you know the car caddy. Thanks for coming. The interview's over. You know that that that's not our that's not our culture. You know yeah. our culture's right. our culture's clean food. Okay. And so, you know, that's, that's not being snobbish or elitist. It's, if you, if, I've done this for, I've asked uh, uh, business people, um, what's the biggest regret you've ever had in business? And you'd be surprised how many of them will say, keeping a person beyond when I realized they wouldn't, they wouldn't fit. And, you know, you hope, oh, I wish, I hope he'll learn to come in on time. Oh, I hope he'll learn to take care of the tractor. I mean, you know, any number of things, right? And and the fact is that when it when it gets to that what that that uh, that tension point, retreat is best. Tonight. Yeah, just 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 it, it's not a fit. And it doesn't mean they're not a bad. You know, doesn't mean they're a bad person. Doesn't mean you're you know condemning them. It's just we we like the word fit. Because it's a non-judgmental term, we even use it for the for the um, like the apprentice and intern applicants that we turn down. We don't say we don't you know we don't write and say the, the rejection. <laughs> we don't say um, we don't like you or or you weren't good enough or anything. We say at this time we just um, our sense is that you're not a good fit for us, and you may be a great fit for somebody else, mm-hmm. but at this time. Um, we think it's not a good fit for us. That's a very gracious way to to tell somebody um, you probably don't you don't work in our community, our character, and our culture. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. and you referenced a book the other day, Joel. Meet me at the top by Zig Ziglar. Right. Where did that Where does that fit in? What's the 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 <laughs> the relevance of that? Well, you know, Zig Ziglar, suppose, you know, he was probably one of the next of where maybe Dale Carnegie, he was uh, perhaps, you know, the world's top salesman of the time. And um, one of his outstanding, I mean, he had many zingers, uh, but one of them was, if you get enough other people to reach their dreams, you'll reach yours. And that's just a really pr- powerful one. And, um, you know, if you, if you know what your other family members and what everybody else on your team, where they want to go in life, and then you begin serving them to help them get where they want to go, you'll probably get where you want to go. That's it's, a, it's a good one. Um, Joel, tell me about the state of regenerative agriculture here in Australia you've been you boy been here for 10 days yeah, yeah, two ten, weeks. yeah 10, 10 days 10 days, days uh-huh. and you've been this is your 16th trip right know? so you right. probably had made some observations along the way where's your sense of regenerative agriculture in Australia and you know mm-hmm. um, how that how we fit into the rest of the world yeah well um, all I can say is uh, uh, good on you and congratulations. Uh, for Australia, you. good on you. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, um, yeah, I do. I do travel uh, around the world, and my sense is that Australia is probably, um, if not the top, certainly in the top, uh, right in the top 
you know, two or three countries in the world whose awareness is building in this. There's, there's, a, there's a higher percentage. Shoot, on the bus today, uh, coming back from the chestnut farm, you know, um, a, a lady and a, a guy told me that, it, that, that, that the Canberra farmer's market, they get eight to 9,000 shoppers a, a market. That's, that's unbelievable. I don't know that there's a market like that in the U.S. Really? Maybe the New York green markets, maybe the New yeah. York green markets, yeah. but I, that's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Uh, and, and and the thing is, Canberra is only 400,000. New York is whatever, 14 million, okay? So, <clears throat> so um, uh, my sense is that Australia is is leading the world in this regenerative space. And and it should. I mean, many of the icons in the movement have come from here. I mean, my mentors, either in person or in word, um, many are from here. I mean, from PA Yeomans with Key Lines to Bill Mollison and Dave Holmgren with Permaculture to uh, Christine Jones with Agronomy, um, Colin Sice mm-hmm. now with Pasture Cropping, um, you know, Peter Andrews with Stream mm-hmm. Remediation. Uh, Darren Dougherty, probably the best water landscape guy in the world. Yeah. Um, these are all coming from Australia. And my, my personal sense is, I haven't read this anywhere, but my sense is Australia is a very fragile landscape, but it's also a very wealthy country. Most fragile landscapes are, are impoverished. But because it's fragile, the awareness is high. It, it's drying out. Mm-hmm. So there's a high awareness but there's there's um, financial ability to experiment, to try, to wiggle, to, to to have you know compared to a kid in the Sahara that's just trying to figure out how to stay alive for tomorrow, mm-hmm. he's limited in the experiments and trials that he can run. Here in Australia, um, it's fragile. Awareness is high, but the economy allows some wiggle room in the trial space, and that's a that's a wonderful combination and. I think that that's one of the reasons Australia leads the world in this. So I can tell you the world's eyes are on mm-hmm. Australia. Mm-hmm. So where the responsibility um, seriously and continue to lead the world. That's what I would say. That's great news. I'm really pleased to hear that. Um, and I hope that Cole Sice and um, uh, Peter Andrews and others will listen to this. I'll, I'll send it to them directly. Joel, we're, we are on the home straight and I'm conscious that you have been talking for the last 26 days pretty much <laughs> nonstop. Um, but I do want to need to ask you about, um, I, back to your comments about communication and storytelling. And you mm-hmm. said the other day that storytellers will lead their trade. What do you mean by that? Well, because people who can communicate the heart of their vocation mm. are the ones that inspire. They're the ones that lead, that encourage, that, that lead their movement. And so, you know, the, the, uh, the communicators, the communicators end up being the leaders in their industries. doesn't matter whether it's rocketry, uh, you know, biochemistry, whatever, the the names that are at the marquee of those of all of those uh, vocations and enterprises are the people who can tell the stories mm. 
uh, about it. And so, uh, you know, it's funny, uh, parents will come up to me and my, my little, you know, uh, Johnny wants to be a farmer. He's here, right here. He's, you know, nine years old. What, what would be the best thing I could do, you know, to help him? <laughs> and of course I blow the, I blow mom's mind by telling her, well, uh, join the local theater group, you know, learn how to tell stories. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, they look at you like you're from Pluto, you know, but, but I'm serious about that. I mean, it's funny, but, but, but I'm serious about that because, because if you, if you can communicate, um, you, you can market, if you can tell stories, you can market, you can sell, you can, you can create excitement about your life and your vocation. And um, so, yeah, communication is just invaluable in, in, in all facets of life. But, but as farmers, um, I think it's one of our weakest links and something that, that we should cultivate among farmers. Maybe we need a, we need a, a, a farmer toastmasters group. You know. That's a great idea. And there's been talk, you know, recently, and uh, you know, and we'll continue. I hope more than talk actually happened that sort of platforms for farmers to put stories, you know, to actually, you mm-hmm. know, I guess, you know, some training about social media and telling stories, whether it's video and, and, and so on. But then having a, a platform to actually express that. And, you know, there's lots of ideas and technology is such a, an amazing mm-hmm. thing now that these things are, are absolutely possible. So... Just switching to decision making, Joel. Um, you, you you had a bit of a yeah. We're gonna we're gonna head off pretty soon because if you're as hungry as I am, um, <laughs> decision making. What you you touched on it this afternoon? What's a quick what's a, your quick sort of um, tips on 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 making decisions? Well, the the first the first tip is you got to have a mission statement. You know, if I if I could boil down Alan Savory's contribution to the world in in one thing, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of value in boiling stuff, you know, in saying the one thing, the one because, well, it helps us to focus. And so, if, if I said, if somebody asked me what's the one thing Alan Savory's brought to the world that's most meaningful of anything, I would say it's the mission statement, mm-hmm. because to me, the mission statement is is your is I call it the thesis statement for your life's essay. Nice. And it's also your roadmap, your direction for where you're going. Look, if you want your spouse to go with you, if you want your kids to go with you, you want a broader team to go with you, you got to have a destination in that car. They're not going to jump in that car if they say, where are we going? You say, well, I don't know. Just get in the car. We'll go. You know, <laughs> nobody's going to go. And so a mission statement, and that's a one sentence. Mm-hmm. It's not a paragraph. Mm-hmm. It's a one sentence. Man, my best comp teachers in high school, man, they drilled this into me. Oh, I love them to death. Uh, of course, I was an English major, you know, so I, I, I did love my English teachers. Mm-hmm. But but the good ones would say, you know, until you can write your thesis statement in one sentence, you're not ready to write the essay. Yeah. Otherwise, you just it, you just ramble. You know, you yeah. go on. And I can say, after having written 12 books, if you can't write the book in one sentence, you're not ready to write either. Nice. And so the mission statement is is number one. Um, I think number two, uh, maybe maybe another one would be um, uh, to to expose yourself to as many things as possible, mm. um, even stuff that you think is weird. Uh, you know, innovation comes from the lunatic fringe. It always does, and we love to read what agrees with us mm. and what we agree. You know. And so I tell liberals to read the conservative stuff, mm. you know, the, 
the 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 organic farmers read some Monsanto stuff, and and and, and the industrial farmers read the organic stuff. You know, we we tend to you know we tend to not do that, and um, and I, I would just uh, say one more maybe, and that is to cultivate brainstorming sessions in our family in our in our team. Um, because farmers are generally family businesses, nobody comes to, you know, a, a meeting, a, you know, a, a discussion with an open slate. They remember the judgmental statement that dad made and the, whatever, the mistake that, so you're right. And, and we come to these and we got all this stuff. And so, um, in, in The Lean Farm, um, Ben Hartman writes about 10 things that are major leaks in a, in a business. And my favorite one, I think, is failure to capture everyone's ideas. And, and um, so some of the most, um, whatever, uh, uh, roadblock... Um, whatever, you know, getting over hurdle yep. sessions that we've mm -hmm. ever had mm -hmm. in our family and our farm is when I call brainstorming sessions with the caveat, nobody can say a single negative word. Um, everything is great idea. Everything is positive. It's good because some people are more timid than others and they need space to know that they're not going to come and get hammered and get halfway out with an idea. And, oh, come on, Jane, you know better than da 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 Right. And, uh, and so, so we come together, we get them all on the table, and then we eat our milk and cookies and leave and go about our jobs and let it simmer for yeah. a couple of weeks. Then we come back for an analysis uh, session. And um, that's really a powerful technique mm. for, for, uh, for getting ideas on the table. You can cull them later on. To just let exactly, the exactly. Yeah. Cull them later. Let the juices go and get them down on paper. Joe, last question. Um, what's, what's your purpose in the world? What's my purpose in the world? Well, uh, our mission statement is to develop economically, emotionally, and environmentally enhancing agricultural prototypes and facilitate their duplication throughout the world. Is that your, as an individual? I mean, you're contributing to that? Do you have your right. own yeah. little tenant for Joel Salton? Uh, well, I guess my my uh, my personal one is to receive the commendation, well done, thou good and faithful servant, at the end. Well, that is the end. And can you please not stop, can you not stop telling your story? Because it is, um, uh, it's amazing. And the books you've written, the impact you've had on um Really, the world, and I'm not pumping up your tires. Well, I am, but it's absolutely, um, you know, it, it's it's um, appropriate because um, you know it, it's been a real honour to have you here and spend mm. the last couple of days and a day last last week with you. And uh, I wish you all the very best for your trip home. And when you mm. get home, I hope that Daniel hasn't got too many jobs for you, <laughs> Daniel. If you're listening to this, I hope you didn't. No, your old man when he got home. Give him a break. And um, I hope to see you next time you're in uh, you're in Australia. Thank you. I, I uh, appreciate all the hospitality and uh, courteousness that 
Australians always extend me. It's always a delight to be here. And having been here so many times, um, it's wonderful to see people again and again and again and, and watch the progress and catch up as friends. And it's been an honor to be with you as well. Thank you. Joel, thank you so much. I trust you enjoyed listening to Joel Salatin as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. He never fails in digging up more gold. Just when I thought I'd heard it all, he so articulately throws a few more nuggets our way. Next week's podcast is episode three, and it is with the man that brought us that sugar film and last year's compelling documentary, 2040. It's Damon Gamo. We talk about uh, regenerative agriculture, renewable energy, COVID-19, and how the world has changed now and how he sees the world changing at the other side of this crisis. We talk about his epiphany, his his tension events that got to change his trajectory um, and send him on his current regenerative journey. I love speaking with him. What a lovely fella. And uh, I trust you'll enjoy listening to him too next week. And don't forget to comment, to share, to subscribe to this podcast. Um, it's on YouTube as well. And share it. Anything you can do to help us get this message out and uh, have other people enjoy um, the guests on the Regenerative Journey podcast. Stay well. Talk to you soon. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. And as the recipient of the Bob Hawke Landcare Award, Charlie would like to thank Landcare Australia for their support in the creation of this first series of The Regenerative Journey. Regenerative Journey.